All right, I'm going to talk about that video in just a minute, but it's that time of year where uh, we're just celebrating the holidays, right? I mean, Americans and our holidays, we put them all together, right? First, there was Halloween. Those of you who are pagans out there, I'm sure you celebrated that holiday. Uh, Then there was Thanksgiving coming up, right? And then there's Christmas, and then there's New Year's, and then everyone's depressed till spring break, right? That's how that works. Guys, well, at the end of the year and at the beginning of a new year, we like to do something special. If you've been around for a while, you know about this, you're excited about this, you've been a part of this, but uh, some of you, maybe many of you are new, and so I wanna let you know, what is that card called Hold the Rope? Well, there's a couple things behind it. First, you just need to know this if you're new here. Uh, We just have an incredibly generous church. Uh, Just this past year, our budget grew by a million dollars because of the consistent generosity of the people who call Two Cities Church home. So by the grace of God, all of our needs are met. And so we want to do something on top of that for our ministry partners locally, nationally, and globally. See, we believe in tithes and offerings. So we teach the tithe. We're not ashamed of that. We teach the tithe 10% to the local church to expand the kingdom of God, okay? But then on top of the tithe, The Bible talks about offerings. You go to the Old Testament, there's lots of offerings. Well, we call this the hold the rope offering. Now, why do we do that? Well, there was this guy named William Carey. You should read about him sometime. He's one of the most famous missionaries that ever lived. And he went to India years and years ago. And nowadays, when people go to India, it's still a big deal, but they get on a plane and they travel 15 or 18 hours. I've done this. And when, when, when people, you know, become missionaries, they go to India, what they do is they say goodbye to their family. And then when they land in India, they FaceTime them. Okay, thank God for technology. Here's what happened back then. They didn't get on a plane and it didn't take 18 hours. They got on a boat and it took several months and they packed their casket. That was very common. Missionaries packed the casket to go, I'm probably not coming home. I'm probably gonna be buried on the mission field. Well, when William Carey was a little bit afraid to go to India, maybe you would be too. And to never come home and all this. So he looks at his best friend. He had a best friend named Andrew Fuller. Think of your best friend. And he said, hey, I'm scared. And going to India feels like going into a deep, deep well. He said, but I will go into the well if you will hold the rope. And what that meant was, Andrew, I'm going to need you to stay stateside and raise money for my ministry the rest of your life. And so we just said, what would it look like for us to hold the rope? And we do this locally, nationally, and globally. We do this locally because we love and we want to serve and we want to bless our city. And here's the truth. Most nonprofits in our city, like the Forsyth Prison Ministry, okay, like Samaritan's Ministry, like Bethesda Ministry, I, mean, I can name many, many ministries, they will never be self-sustaining. Why? Because they minister to people who could never pay them back. So what we want to do is we want to call Forsyth Ministries. By the way, don't tell them. They don't know that. We're, like, we're just like, hey, can we shoot a video? They don't know we're going to give them a gift. Okay? What we're going to do, we're going to give them a significant gift. Not only that, we're going to buy every prisoner a Bible. In the, yeah, we're, gonna, we're just going to do a lot, depending on your generosity. So we're very, very excited about it. The, the second thing is national ministry. Now, I know, you know, it can be the saying of a political party that they want to save America. That's not the church, what the church wants to do. The church wants to save Americans. That's a little different. And the way that we do that is by planting churches. So you're going to hear about our church planting partners and opportunities and strategic giving and very, very exciting. That's coming, I think, next week. We'll tell you about that. And then thirdly, we're going to increase our global footprint. We don't worship a tribal deity over Winston-Salem. We worship a global God, and we are very excited about some of the opportunities we have with some of our global partners that I'll be telling you about in the weeks to come. So here's the ask, guys. Uh, Our ask is 100% participation. Uh, We want every person who calls Two Cities Church home to give a one-time gift above and beyond normal tithes and offerings to the Hold the Rope initiative by the end of the year. Our hope, last year we raised hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And by the way, this is all on top of our normal mission giving that's in our budget every year. Uh, Secondly, I want to tell you just one other thing. 
of Christmas services. We're still on schedule to get in this building on December 17th. Amen? Yes. I, I was over there twice a day, every day, looking, you know, looking around. Who's in charge here? And whoever's in charge, I just said, hey, listen, I told our church we're going to be in there on December 17th. They said, we're going to do it. So that's what we're hoping for, which means our second service is going to be Christmas Eve. So I just want to let you know, we're, we're trusting God. We're, we're going to be starting with three services in the building. Some people said, are you going to two services? No, we're going to stay at three services. And, uh, and we're trusting God, even at Christmas, it's going to be a unique time. And, and listen, I've never, I don't think, I don't think I've ever gotten up here and said, please invite your friends to church. I just, I think that sounds desperate when a pastor gets up there and says, next week is Friends Sunday. We, you know, you know, here's what we just want to do. We just want to say, listen, uh, there are three times a year somebody who otherwise wouldn't come to church will come to church. Easter, Christmas, and when something's not going well in their life. And so you, we've got a brand new building that people are going to be like, what is that? Plus a cultural moment of Christmas. And so we just want to say, we think it's an unbelievable opportunity to invite somebody who's far from God, close to you, maybe you're one. So let's take a moment and pray, and then we're going to dive into uh, our plot twist series. <clears throat> Lord, I just take a moment right now, and I just pray for each person as they have conversations with themselves, with you, um, with, with their spouses. Uh, pray we just even get our kids involved in this opportunity of generosity. We love our partners locally, nationally, globally. We're eager to give them a phone call in the new year and just when, in a culture of bad news, just to give them some good news about how their ministry is gonna be able to go further faster because of our church and the generosity toward them. Um, <clears throat> Lord, we continue to pray for our building. Just we ask, we are, we are trying our best with praying and planning toward a December 17th launch and toward the hope to celebrate Christmas in the new building. That's our prayer, Lord. Would you do it in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, do you like your neighbors? Don't raise your hand, okay? Do you like your neighbors, okay? Do you, do you have, we've all probably had, if you, do you have the crazy neighbor, the annoying neighbor, the strange neighbor? If you invited him, don't raise your hand, okay? Uh, guys, it's hard to be a good neighbor, right? Sometimes we can't stand our literal neighbors. This is why some of you moved out to Davie County and bought 25 acres. You're like, no more neighbors. This is why that saying, fences make good neighbors is so popular. Well, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 10, I'm gonna talk to you today about the parable of the good neighbor. Well, you probably know of it, about it as the parable of the good Samaritan. And what Jesus is gonna talk about today, he's gonna to talk about what it means to be a good neighbor. See, if you're a Christian here, here's what Jesus teaches us. Every Christian is your brother and sister, but every person is your neighbor. And he's gonna teach us today, this is very simple. This is where we're headed. This is the rest of our time. Who to love and how to love. Who do we love? Well, that's a good question to ask. And then how do we love? Well, they'll both be shown in this parable. But I gotta just talk to us about the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is the most famous parable that Jesus tells. I mean, in, in kind of Western thought, Western culture. I mean, we even have the phrase Good Samaritan, right? I mean, Samaritan, I mean, think about this. This is like a little, little teeny town in the Middle East. And we name a ministry in our city, Samaritan's Ministry, and that's everywhere. Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, when he, you know, he had that moment where he said, Dad, I don't think I'm gonna be the worldwide evangelist, but I'd like to start a ministry, and I think I wanna call it Samaritan's Purse. So if you've ever heard of Operation Christmas Child, that's all under the umbrella of Samaritan's Purse. In our city, there is a Samaritan's Baptist Church. Yes, even the Baptists named their churches after this parable. Um, and there are, you may not know this, there are Good Samaritan Laws. And here's what a Good Samaritan Law says. A Good Samaritan Law says, if you're in trouble, and I can help you, and I help you, but while I help you, I also hurt you, you can't sue me. You're like, what, is that? what do you mean? Okay, so say you're, you're trying to be healthy and you're eating too much kale and you start choking on your kale, okay? <laughs> I know how some of you are. 
And I don't like to brag, but I am CPR certified. And I do know how to do the Heimlich. And so I see you, and in an act of compassion on my part, I come and I do the Heimlich. But I accidentally break one or two of your ribs, okay? Because I do it too hard. You can't sue me under the Good Samaritan Law. In fact, in eight states, don't worry, North Carolina's not one of them. But in eight states, it goes farther and it says, if I see, if you see somebody in need and you don't at least call 911, you could be prosecuted. So this is a very interesting parable today. And, but the parables never happen in a vacuum, guys. It's not like Jesus just randomly goes, hey, every, you know, everyone gather up. I got a random story to tell you. They, they, they happen because the disciples are confused about something and Jesus says, let me tell you a parable. It happens because he's angry, because Jesus gets angry at the Pharisees and the religious leaders and their hard heart, and he's like, I'm gonna tell you this parable, okay? But sometimes, and maybe most often, parables are in response to a question. So here's what's gonna happen today. Well, let's just look at it. Turn with me to verse 25. We'll pick up the story. Here's what it says. And behold, a lawyer stood up. So Jesus is teaching, and a lawyer stands up. By the way, that's respect. In that culture, you didn't raise your hand. You stood up. Everyone was seated. You stood up to ask a question. The lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So I'm gonna get to the parable in a few minutes, but it all starts with a conversation with a lawyer. How many of you like to talk to lawyers? Mm, I didn't think so, right? No, no, no. Here's what happens. This all starts, with, in fact, here's how it's gonna, ha- this is what's gonna happen, okay? This is, this is interesting if you've never seen this before. The lawyer's gonna ask Jesus a question. <laughs> and then Jesus is gonna ask the lawyer a question. And then the lawyer's gonna ask Jesus a question. And then Jesus is gonna tell a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, with a question at the end. Now, some people go, why does Jesus respond to questions with questions? Why not? <laughs> some of you will get that on the way home. <laughs> okay, first I want you to see that the lawyer asks a very good question. He asks the, this is, sometimes we ask the right question to the wrong person. Sometimes we ask the wrong question to the right person. <laughs> um, Jesus, or the lawyer, asked the right question to the right person. I mean, there is no more important question than how do I have eternal life? That's the question he asks. Uh, That's a more important question than who do I marry? And that's an important question. Or what career path do I choose? And that's an important question. Or how many kids should we have? And is it time to buy a house? And those are all really, really important questions. But there's no more important question than how do I have eternal life? We might say it today as how do I get to heaven? Now, here's what's interesting. Every kid asks this question. Like every mom and dad knows, I don't know exactly what age, but all my kids ask this question five, six, seven years old, they, they all ask some version of where's great grandma? That's a, that's a heaven question. What happens when we die? They, we, now here's what happens in America today. Americans never ask this question. Americans are very, very, very concerned. Where will I be financially in 30 years? Americans are not very concerned. Where will I be forever in 300 years? And here's what's interesting. Uh, what, how do Americans the average American, not, the, not a Christian, the average person in Winston-Salem, how do they think you get to heaven? I know the answer. There's only one thing you have to do to go to heaven. Die. That's it. The average American thinks, I know how I get to heaven. I die. It's not, it's not I'm justified by the death of Christ. I'm justified by my death. Now, what's interesting is he talks about eternal life. Here, we're only concerned about biological life. You have both. The Christian does. Biological life is, you know, oh, what's, you know, am I working out? Am I exercising? Am I staying healthy? Am I, you know, all that. We care a lot about our biological life. We don't think very much about eternal life. Well, here's what Jesus says. I love how Jesus responds. Look at verse 26. 
I told you, he responds with a question. Jesus said, or he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So I love this. Okay, he basically says, how do I get to heaven? How do I have eternal life? That's the same question. And maybe it's helpful first to notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, don't worry about it, man. He doesn't say, okay, here's what I need you to do. Be a good person. Do more good things than bad things. He doesn't say, uh, you know what? Actually, it doesn't really matter because, you know, it's all roads lead to God and do, do whatever path you want. He doesn't say, uh, don't worry about it. Just ask God for forgiveness at the end of your life. What he does instead, and this is just so simple, but I want you to see this. He, Jesus points him to God's word for the answers to his questions. He doesn't point him to culture. What does cultural opinion say about heaven? He doesn't point him to tradition. We're not against tradition. He doesn't point him to reason or logic. We're not against reason or logic. He points him to God's word. Now, here's just an honest question for us, especially those of us who say we're Christians in here. Uh, do you believe God's word has the answers to your problems and other people's problems? That's, that's a deep conviction that you have to have. So for example, I, here's what I think. I, I think the Christian just should have the same view of scripture that Jesus has. You don't have to be able to defend and define inerrancy and inspiration and infallibility, and those are big scary words, okay? You don't have to, you just gotta say, you know what, I'm gonna be committed. If I'm gonna worship Jesus, I'm going to have the same view of the Bible as Jesus does. So he, how do you know that you're growing as a Christian? Well, there's lots of ways, okay? But one way you know you're growing as a Christian is you're more guided, guarded, and governed by God's word. That's all you're doing. You turn 21 and you say, what does God's word say about alcohol? And you get married and you say, what does the Bible say about marriage? And you start dating. What does the Bible say about sexual purity and relationships? And you have kids and you start saying, what does the Bible say about parenting? And you make money. And you say, what does the Bible say about giving and spending and saving and investing and contentment? And see, the problem with most of us is we're not ourselves believing that God's word has the answers to our problems. So there's this guy named Bart Ehrman, who I'm not a big fan of. You've probably heard of him, maybe. He's professor of religion at UNC, right down the street, about two hours away. And he's a, you know, outspoken atheist who teaches New Testament at UNC. I know, strange. But what, what he does is, uh, in, this is well known, in his class, the first day of class, he says to all the students in there, because he's a little salty, he says, who in here would say you believe the Bible? Now, this is UNC. So you still have a lot of cultural Christians. You still got a lot of people from North Carolina. So on average, he's got 25 to 50% of the people who raise their hands say, I believe the Bible. He says, okay, put your hands up. He says, just those same people that are the 25, 50% of you. He says, how many of you have read the entire Bible just once in your life, cover to cover? You've read every book. He said, one to none of the people will raise their hand. He says, okay, just those same people. Who has read the entire Harry Potter collection? And almost everyone's hand's gone up. And then he says some version of, come on, guys. You don't believe the Bible. If you've been able to follow Harry Potter through Hogwarts, it's longer. Those seven books of the Bible, or seven books of Harry Potter are longer than the Bible. He says, guys, let's just be honest. We don't believe that it's God's word because we wouldn't treat it that way if we did. So sometimes your critics can be your coaches. They can teach you some things. Well, anyway, he says, uh, what does the scripture say? And then look what the man says, verse 27. He gives a great answer. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, guys, that's an incredible answer. We just take that answer for granted because Jesus says it in a different place and you know this passage. And I mean, this is what, you go on almost any modern Christian church's website and it's gonna say some version of love God, love each other. 
love God, love people, love the world. We take this for granted that they all go together. It's actually a miracle that this man was able to take something so complex as how do you define the entire law and how do you, how do you put it all together? And he's able to bring two commands together, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, love the Lord your God. And what appears to be a random verse in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know if you know that you're like, the whole love my neighbor as myself, the first time it shows up is the book of Leviticus? Well, anyway, he puts those two together. It's not easy to simplify and summarize things, right? They talk about simplistic things. Simplistic is it's shallow and it's fast and it doesn't hit everything. Complex is deep and slow. Simple is fast and deep. He just took something, he made it very, very simple. He said, okay, I'm supposed to love God with all my heart and love others. Look what Jesus says in response. So Jesus says, we're getting into almost to the parable now. He says, and he said, you've answered correctly, go ahead. He said, do this and you will live. Now, Jesus doesn't actually think he can do this, right? Have you ever loved God? Just don't answer out loud, but have you ever loved God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength? Like, I don't even know if we do that in the middle of passionate worship while we're singing a song, yet alone with our entire life. And then have you ever loved your neighbor as much as you've loved yourself? Let's just admit it, we love ourselves just a little bit more. If I took a picture right now, I brought out my iPhone, I took a picture of this whole worship center, I said, guys, check this picture out. I just took this, I'm gonna throw it on the screen. Who are you looking for? Yourself, okay? <laughs> yes, you are. We don't even like to look at pictures that we're not in. We're like, what are all these random pictures? Where am I? <laughs> we love ourselves. So here's the thing. People don't know how bad they are until they try to be good, okay? What we prefer to do is find somebody who's worse than us and look at their life and feel good about ourselves. This is why every golfer loves John Daly. Have you ever seen John Daly? <laughs> Someone told me recently, John Daly has not had a glass of water in 10 years, okay? He looks like it. Well, so what we do is we like to look, he's an extreme version, we like to look at somebody who's not doing as well in life and has a lot of moral failures, and by looking at that person, it makes us feel better about ourselves. So Jesus says, go ahead and try to do this. You know, go ahead and try to be a good dad. Go ahead and try to be a good husband. Go ahead and try not to love money. Go ahead and try to be generous. Go ahead and try to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And not until you do that will you realize how bad you are and how wicked your heart is. So, he, but you know, the, the guy's still not getting it. So here's what he says. But he, this is the lawyer again, desiring to, this is interesting. So we get his two motives. His first motive was to test Jesus. His second motive is to, here it is, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What does it mean to justify yourself? I want to be right. We often want to be right instead of forgiven. That's why arguments go way too long. To want to justify yourself is I, I want to look good. Here's what he's doing. This is, this is what, and you have to understand this because this whole parable will not make sense if you don't understand who it's given to. And it's given to you and me because this is who we are. We are the lawyer. We want to justify ourselves. Here's what, he, here's what he's asked for. Let me simplify it for you. He says, can you give me a rule? Religious people love rules. In fact, you know you're in a religious home when there's lots of rules. You know you're in a religious church when there are rules, and then there are rules about the rules. And there are people who enforce the rules, okay? And, and here's the thing about religious people and rules. They want a rule that they can keep that's mostly external. And what they like to do is they like to watch themselves obey that rule, feel good about themselves, and judge everyone else who doesn't do that. And so this is a very important concept because what happens is he says, okay, give me, what he's saying is, all right, tell me who my neighbor is. And can you give me like a very small, very defined person? And then what I'll do is I'll 
be a neighbor to that person, whatever that means, and then I'll feel really, really good about myself. He wants a law, and what Jesus is going to talk about is love. I'm not saying the law and love are necessarily opposed, but the law tends to want to limit things. Love tends to want to magnify and expand things, right? So the law says, what's the least I have to do? This is our natural, in our fallen flesh, this is what we want to know. What's the least amount of time I need to spend with my wife so she's not upset? What, you know, what's the least amount I have to do as a parent? What's the least amount I have to give? What's the least amount I have to serve? Just give me a law and I'll hit the law. But love never says that. Like most of us at one point in our life have been in love, okay? Do you remember what it was like to be in love? You would drive four hours to spend 15 minutes with her or him. You're like, this doesn't make any sense. That's because love is a maximizer and the law is a minimizer. But he, look, he's not gonna get it. So Jesus is gonna have to tell this story. So that's all intro to the story. This story is given to a religious person who wants laws and rules instead of wants to really embrace every person as his or her neighbor. So let me show you this. So he moves into the story. Here's what he says. Verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, it's interesting. Sometimes Jesus will tell, when he tells a story, he'll say, I'm gonna tell you a parable. Or sometimes the author will introduce, and then Jesus told a parable. We're actually not told that this is a parable. Now, it doesn't matter either way because the principles and points are the same, but it's interesting that he doesn't say this is a parable. This may have really, really happened. But either way, the, the applications and principles will be the same. But what's interesting is he, t he names real places. So obviously Jerusalem's a real place, Jericho's a real place. This was a 17-mile journey. So I've told you before, it takes about 20 miles is a, is a day's journey. So this is a day's journey. Uh, it was a dangerous road. It was right next to the valley of the shadow of death. Ever heard of that? Yes, that's in Psalm 23. It was right next to that. So what, what's interesting is this guy is traveling down this road, and he gets beaten up, left for half dead, which basically means he's unconscious, and all his clothes are off. So why are we told this? Jesus sets up the story so we can't identify who the man is. We know the least about this guy than anybody else. I mean, you know, how do you, how do you know who somebody is? Well, in that culture, and still in our culture today, you'd see how they're dressed. You'd know their status. You'd know their culture. Or if you couldn't tell there, you'd talk to the person. And depending on the language they were speaking, speaking or the accent they had, then you'd be like, okay, I know who this person is. The whole point is this guy is just left dead in the ditch, anonymous. We have no idea who that is, and that's the point because it could be anybody. Okay, now, that's the setup of the story. You know that part. Here's what's interesting. Now, by chance, a priest, let's just stop there, okay? So you have to know this, but the priests, they were the spiritual leaders of that time. They were running the worship services. They were overseeing the sacrifices. They were supposed to be the model of what it meant to follow Yahweh. They were supposed to be the ideal citizen. They, they were who everybody looked up to. Like, they, you know what's gonna happen because that's the problem, you know this parable already, but when, when you're reading this for the first time, it would be like me saying, there was a man in a ditch and, and, and down the road comes Tim Tebow. You'd be like, he certainly will do something. <laughs> if anyone will do something, Tim Tebow will do something. That's what you're supposed to feel. You're supposed to feel like this guy is the greatest guy. It's who we look up to. Okay, so here's what it says. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, you'll see that all three of the people see him. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You have to know who you are in the story. We are the lawyer and we are the priest. 
What the priest does is what we're all at least tempted to do, which is when we see need or pain or other people's problems, we immediately figure out a way to distance ourselves in the most polite, kind way possible from that person. I'm not here to beat you up, but to build you up, but let's just admit, and this is okay. It really is. I don't know that there's another way. But if you look over your life, many of us will realize that our whole life, maybe not intentionally, but has been designed to not interact with people who are in need. Sometimes it's like, that's why we're not sending the kids to that school. Because we don't have to and we're not going to. And we can live in this neighborhood and send our kids to that school. This is why people live in neighborhoods that they live in. Because in th this is a safe neighborhood and there's nothing like that kind of stuff doesn't happen here and those type of people don't come here. This is why people don't go to certain parts of the city. We've just, we've just spent our entire lives, most of us can live our entire life and never interact with anybody in need except for that homeless person on Jonestown Road. And even then we're like, all right, lock the doors, put your sunglasses on, don't make eye contact. Now, what, 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 why didn't he stop? There are, it's interesting, when I read, you know, we don't know why he didn't stop. We can only assume based on culture and temperament and, you know, his job and different things, why he didn't stop. And as I looked at all the commentators and the scholars and what they said, they really came up with four different reasons the priest didn't stop. And when I read these, I thought, these are the exact same four reasons we don't stop. So let me just give them to you, because maybe it's not all these for you, but it's some of them. Why don't we otherwise get involved and help when we see a need? Number one, maybe the priest just thought, this is this guy's fault, and I'm not gonna help somebody who got themselves in trouble. Maybe this guy was fighting with other people, and maybe he, maybe he picked on these robbers, and he doesn't even know that robbers came. Maybe this guy's been doing drugs, and that's why he's in the pit. Well, here's what we tend to do. We tend to want to, and, the, and there's many reasons for this. We tend to want to simplify people's problems into it's their fault completely. So it's very easy to look at someone and be like, you know, the easy thing, I'll give you a classic example. You see someone, you know, they're homeless, they're on the street, and you're just like, okay, I know your problem. You're probably addicted to drugs. You know, I know, I know your problem. I, you know, I, I know what it is. You're lazy. You know, I, I know your problem. You don't want to work and you can't keep a job. It's like, we wish it was that simple. You know, the best definition of poverty I've ever heard is poverty is at the end of the day, a lack of relationships. I mean, lots of relationships. You know, you look at somebody, you go, well, where's their mom and dad? And well, there's a lack of relationship there. And there's, they have a terrible relationship with money, probably. And they have a terrible relationship with uh, maybe some substance or whatever. So the first thing that we do is, is we just look at somebody because it makes us feel better. And we think, dude, you know what? That person made some horrible decisions and they're gonna have to get themselves out of that, which is the opposite of the gospel. I mean, we, our whole, everything you just sung about, if you're a Christian, is basically we got ourselves into some terrible trouble. And Jesus didn't look at us and say, you're, sorry, your fault. You're going to have to get yourself out of that. Second reason, um, the second reason that people didn't stop is safety concerns, right? Now, it's complex. We have families. The Samaritan's a, a guy by himself. But, you know, what, here's, what, here's what the priest would have been thinking. Well, you know, say he thinks that the robbers, you know, did get this guy. They think, he thinks, well, this guy got beat up by some robbers, and everyone's traveling on their horse or mule or whatever, and he thinks, if I get off my mule, I make myself vulnerable to the surroundings. What if this guy's playing a trick on me? And, and he's acting like he's hurt, but as soon as I get over there, he's gonna hurt me. 
well, what if these robbers are actually pretty smart? And what they did to get even more money is they hurt a guy and then they leave him so that somebody will have compassion and be naive and come out and will hurt him too. So, I mean, there's always that. We'll see this. There's always the like, what will happen to me if I do something? What's going to be different is the Samaritan is going to ask, what's going to happen to him if I don't do something? The third thing is busyness. Well, you know, I mean, priests are important. It's hard for us to imagine this, you know, because we don't view ministry the same way today as we do back then. But the priests were the leaders. They were the celebrities in the culture. They were the academic elites. They were the ones who, you know, had good salaries and good incomes. And so this guy's very, guys, he's very important, right? How many of us think some version of that? I don't have time for this. I've got meetings to be to, and I've got places to be. And I mean, I'm heading from Jerusalem down to Jericho. I don't have time. Somebody less important and less busy than me can handle him. But then the fourth is his religious duties and religious traditions hindered him from helping. Now, how do we know that? Because he came from Jerusalem to Jericho, um, and there was a Jewish tradition that said if you touched a dead body, you would be ritually or ceremonially unclean for seven days. So if he touches this body, according to Jewish tradition, he has to go back up to the temple. He has, so it's gonna take him more time, more energy, more money. And so there's part of you that you hear it, you go, okay, he's just like us, and I understand why he wouldn't, wouldn't do this. So that's the first thing. This, this, this guy passes by, but then we hear a second person. I want you to see this. It says this, verse 32. So likewise, in every, everything that Jesus tells us, he, he puts in there for a reason. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, so it's the exact same story. Levite comes, sees him. Here's what it says. He passed by on the other side. So why a priest and a Levite? What we have to know about a Levite is a Levite is a JV priest, okay? A Levite is to a priest what a mall cop is to a real cop, okay? The mall cop's got the Segway and the flashlight. Please, you know, get to a heavily lit area quickly. Um, and, uh, and so he, he, this is actually really important. So what we know about this, what's called the pass of blood that I told you about, this 17-mile road, though it was very dangerous and though there could be robbers on the sides, uh, at any point in the road, you could usually see three to four miles down the road. So the reason that Jesus is telling this story and what everybody would have heard and understood who was listening to for the first time, the Levite saw the priest pass this man by. So what's the point of this? And this is actually, I hope you'll get this. This is very important. Sometimes when we don't do something, when we aren't faithful, when we aren't doing ministry and mission, when we aren't loving people, we make it more difficult for the generation that's coming behind us. So the the Levite, you know, could say something like this. Well, dude, I don't make as much money as the priest. If the priest can't afford to help this guy, I can't. I don't have the flexibility in my schedule that he does. I don't have the status to kind of explain this if someone doesn't like what I'm doing. See, when we are not faithful in an area of our life, we introduce struggles into the generation that's coming behind us. How many parents, they're just, they're they're making it more difficult for their kids to be faithful to Christ because of their lack of faithfulness? Because I'll tell you, I mean, they may not, again, people think things that they don't, you know, articulate out loud, but, you know, if, uh, you know, it's 
someone could say, man, well, if, if mom and dad, who made a lot more money than me, and I don't know that I'll ever make that much money or it'll be a long time before I make that much money, if they can't give, there's no chance I can give. You know, mom and dad weren't, they couldn't stay married. How am I gonna stay married? And people don't often make the connection. This literally happened in our church. This was a long time ago, but we had this couple come up to us and they were so upset. And so we met with them. They said, we're so upset. They had an adult son who's in our church. We're so upset. Our son is not in a community group. He doesn't want to get in a community group. And I'm like thinking to myself, because I knew this, I thought, you guys aren't in a community group. You know, it's like A-W-A-W, wait, A-W-K-W-A-R-D, awkward moment, you and me. That's what I was about to feel. <laughs> like, this is about, do I right now point out to this couple that they're not in a community group? Because it's so obvious that they haven't, because people wonder, how does generational sin happen? Does it, does it, you know, go from one person to the other person quietly at night while everybody's sleeping? No. The love of money is passed down when a young man or woman watches his parents value materialism and consumerism for 20 years. So the Levite passes by. The Levite says, you know what? If the priest can't do nothing, I can't do anything. Well, then you know what happens. I mean, here's the famous story. Here's the guy. But a Samaritan. I can't explain to you how much the Jews hated Samaritans. When, when it's, when, when it's, if this was a movie, when he says, but a Samaritan, the music to Jaws would start, dun, 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 right? That's what would happen, 100%. Because Samaritans, I mean, okay, so, you know, what's interesting is theology is on the front page of your newspaper every day. It's always been that way, but especially right now, right? Like when, you know, what's happening in the Middle East, Hamas and Israel and all this, listen, what you realize is people, not just in the Middle East, but people in the Middle East have hated each other for as long as there's been human civilization. So you just need to think about this and think about how much the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. It's too long of a story to tell you, but basically at the end of the day, there was this group that intermarried with the Assyrians a long time ago in the Old Testament and the Jews hated them for it. They thought they compromised and they were half Gentile and half Jew and they didn't fit either place and they were hated by both. So that's who the Samaritans are. So look what it says here. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, so we got the same beginning to all three guys. Oh, here's the difference. Here's the one difference. He had compassion. Okay, how, you know, I don't know if there's anyone in America who hates each other as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans, Samaritans hated the Jews. You might say the extreme Democrats and the extreme Republicans and their hatred for each other, maybe. You might say, you know, Duke and UNC fans. I mean, I don't know, okay. But if I could bring this down, this is what it would be like. So say the biggest, I don't know what his name would be, the biggest UNC fan ever, okay? He's just, he loves UNC. This is how Jesus would tell the parable today. So that UNC fan, he's beaten and his jersey's torn and his, you know, his ball is deflated, okay? And uh, he's lying in a ditch. And Roy Williams walks by, if you don't know who that is, former coach at UNC. And Roy Williams saw him. He passed by on the other side. You go, well, why would he? Well, it just happened that right after War Williams, Michael Jordan came, who was played for UNC and loved UNC, and he also passed by on the other side. But then Coach K was walking. 
And he bandaged up his wounds and he pumped up his basketball and he put his jersey back on. And we're like, no! That's, that's what this is saying. So let's look at th- verses 33 and 34 and see what the Samaritan did. He's to be the model example. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The priest and the Levite saw a body. The Samaritan saw a person and a soul. He went to him, and he bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The two attributes that define the good Samaritan and I think define a good neighbor are compassion and courage. Compassion, it's, it's, you, know, you know what that is. That's, that's a deep feeling where you're able to relate to where that person is and you think something like, what if that was me or what if that was my son or what if that was my daughter? What if that was my sister? What if that was my mom? And you just, you have this compassion. It's emotional. Some of us actually just need to pray for that more. Lord, would you, would you open up my eyes so that when I see somebody in need, I don't just get angry, frustrated, and think about how I can avoid it, but I actually start to care for them. So it says he had compassion. And compassion, true compassion, always leads to practical care. So he, he gets off his mule or his horse, it says, and he went to him. You have to understand that with most needs, they're not gonna come to us. There are some people that are gonna come to us and they're gonna say, my marriage is falling apart and I got, dude, I made some mistakes financially. My kid's really breaking my heart. I'm addicted. I mean, people are, they'll, they'll be that. But a lot of times you're gonna see them and they're not gonna be in a condition to come to you and say, I need help. You're gonna need to go to them. The second thing is he has courage, obviously. Everything I said about the priest and the Levite apply to him. He's busy. He could get hurt. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And he comes and he does something that we often don't want to do. He gets personally involved. So you, you think about it, you read all the things. It's like he bandaged up his wounds. You know, I read the commentaries on this. Well, how did he bandage up his wounds? Well, he didn't have a first aid kit with him. The way you bandaged up wounds back then is you ripped your shirt or your tunic. And so he would have less so that this guy could have more. Not only that, oil and wine, I mean, that's celebration. That's a good time. That's luxury. That's extra stuff you could do for yourself. Oh, some of the luxury he's not gonna be able to enjoy so that he can help this man heal. Not only that, we don't know exactly the animal that he was on, but most likely, most animals back then, they couldn't carry two people. So what happens when you throw a guy who's half dead on your animal? You're walking. So we have all these, this beautiful imagery that, wait a second, we're going to have to, here's the, here's the phrase, I already said it, we're going to have to get personally involved with our time and our energy and our money. So when I was growing up, my dad used to always say, it's very easy to spend OPM, other people's money. And uh, we're so glad as a church to do so many generous things, but it's amazing how many people just think the church should do everything. Well, there's a, you know, a under-resourced middle school ministry in, you know, in this part of town, and I think the church should give to it. And now the new game, it took me about, I've been pastoring now for seven years, it took me about two years to learn this game, but my favorite game to play is Tag Your It. It's a, they, not everyone else likes to play that game, but I love that game. <laughs> you know, we should build houses and start this ministry. I agree, Tag Your It. And then all of a sudden, I said, oh, no, 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 I, 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 no not me. I wanted to just lay around on Saturdays, but I want the church to do something. 
What's interesting is, and this is another important thing, he takes him to an inn. Where is an inn? An inn is a place where there are systems and there are structures and there is staffing for the person to get the long-term comprehensive care that they need. What is that? It's the church. What are we, when you drive by, you know, our new building, you can think home and hub for ministry. I love it. We've been using that language. You can think ark, like a safe place, like Noah's ark. You can think lighthouse. I love that. Maybe also think in. It's a place where people can come and they can get the comprehensive long-term care, the help, the hope, and the healing that they need. In fact, that's what you do. As a Christian, you're, you're living your life where you live, learn, work, and play, and you find someone in a ditch. And you go, all right, I'm gonna have to get personally involved in this. All right, here we go. Here's my money. Here's my time. Here's my energy. And then you bring that person to a place, the local church, where they can get comprehensive care. Now, sometimes the church is the big inn. Sometimes the church says, you know what? We're not the best inn for that. We know another inn in town. This is why we always think about sit or organizations, not situations. So there's, there are whole ministries in our city. I already mentioned Samaritan's Ministry, Bethesda Center. There's, we're not reinventing the wheel as two cities church. We're like, okay, there's a ministry that has been around for decades that knows how to deal with homelessness and hunger. So we're gonna help that person get to that inn. By the way, you can tell a person really wants help if they're willing to go to an inn. I, I'm telling you, I did ministry before I was here in a downtown church in Durham, and we would every day have people knock on the door. And they would always ask for a bunch of, yeah, can I have money? Can I have food? Can I have this? And as soon as we said, would you like to go somewhere where we could help you long-term? No. Oh. When you want to go to the end, that's when you'll really get help. Notice also, well, I don't think I've read it yet. Let's go here. I want you to see what he says. Um, verse 34, I'll read it one more time. And he went and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He gets financially invested and involved. Two denarii uh, was depending on the quality of that inn would let the man stay at that inn for one to two months. So the guy, and here, here's maybe the most interesting thing. The guy, as far as we understand in this story, one of the most humbling things about this, this Samaritan story is he is going to remain completely anonymous. Like this guy's gonna wake up and be like, how'd I get to this inn? And he's, I don't know how it worked right then, but he's gonna go down to the lobby and go to the front desk and they're gonna be like, yeah, some guy, he's not here anymore. He brought you here. He also gave me some money. You can stay here for a long time. Don't worry about it. Nothing will push on your flesh as much as doing something and nobody else knowing about it. Giving and nobody knows. Serving and nobody knows. Praying and nobody knows. We, we love to watch ourselves do things. We love to have other people watch us do things. Well, here's an interesting thing to think about in the story. Why did Jesus make the Samaritan the hero? Why didn't he, if he wanted to teach the lawyer a lesson, why isn't the third person the lawyer? It's like, hey, there's a priest, and there's a Levite. But look, look, you, you could be this hero. It's because the lawyer is not the hero of the story, and you and I are not the hero of the story. 
We are, if you haven't figured it out already, we are the priest and the Levite. More than that, we are the guy half naked, beat up by sin and Satan and selfishness, lying in a ditch. And why a Samaritan? Because Jesus wanted to communicate a powerful truth. Somebody who looks nothing like you is the one who will save you. Somebody who comes from a faraway place is the one who's going to save you. Somebody who was your enemy is going to be your friend. What he's trying to say is, look, here's what Jesus is trying to communicate. What if your only hope in life was unexpected extravagant love from somebody whom you didn't deserve it? And that's the picture of the gospel. Jesus is not just the good Samaritan, he would be the great Samaritan who gets personally involved, who gave his time, his money, his energy, himself completely for us and for our salvation. And I'm just telling you, the only way, I mean, I, we can, I could try to beat you guys up for 40 minutes and say, well, you gotta help homeless people and you gotta help your neighbor and you gotta, and that's not gonna last. What, what, the only way that you're going to be the type of neighbor that you need to be long-term is you need to realize that Jesus Christ bursted all of this for you. He didn't pass by on the other road, but he had compassion and courage and went to you and brought help, hope, and healing. So here's how he ends. He ends with a question. I told you, it's question, 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 question. It says this, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? It's interesting. He was asking, who's my neighbor? He's saying, who can you be a neighbor to? I'm flipping the question. I'm expanding it. Who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In other words, Jesus says, you don't need a new rule. You need an entirely new reality. <laughs> you need to realize what God has done for you in Christ. And that's going to so transform your heart and give you such an energy that you're going to be able to love other people. It's interesting, Martin Luther, that famous monk who was part of starting the Reformation, when he read this passage and he just had a way with words and a way with teaching, he read this passage and he said to his church at the end, you know what your rule is? You need to be Christ to your neighbor. And he didn't think that, you know, he believed in the uniqueness and exclusivity of Christ. What he was, he was saying WWJD, you know, 1500 or 500 years early, okay? He was saying what you should ask in a situation is what, not that what does the law require, but what does love require? And what does it look like for me to be Christ to my neighbor? See guys, we spent an entire initiative talking about being gospel messengers. And we thank God for that. Gospel messengers, hey, one risk and one relationship at a time. And the gospel goes forward with one conversation and share the gospel with who's far from God and close to you. That's being a gospel messenger. We also wanna be gospel neighbors. Gospel neighbors said, you know, I'm, I'm not just gonna tell you about Christ. I'm going to love you like Christ. And what we wanna have is not just gospel doctrine, Gospel doctrine is we have all the right thinking about Jesus and the cross and you know the empty tomb and salvation and sin, that's gospel doctrine. So many churches have gospel doctrine and they don't have gospel culture. And gospel culture is your life can fall apart here. And gospel culture is we forgive each other. And gospel culture is we give grace. And gospel culture is I see you as a sinner who needs God's grace and I understand myself as a sinner who needs God's grace. So as we close, if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, I want you to think about your neighbor. Your neighbor may be your spouse. Your, your neighbor may be your kids. The problem with us is we often want to love the ideal person, not the real people in front of us. 
And there are certain people that, that they just need, they need us to go to them. Lord, would you help us to be gospel messengers and gospel neighbors? Would you help us to get personally involved? Would you help us to not be like the priest and the Levite who are boring and predictable and selfish and uninterested and have forgotten that ministry and mission is about people? It's about loving people, praying for people, reconciling people to each other. Lord, would you help us to be gospel neighbors as you were first and foremost a gospel neighbor to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.